ETJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. The following PTJ podcast is the 44th Mary McMillan Lecture, delivered by Dr. Roger Nelson at APTA Conference 2013 on June 27, 2013, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Introducing Dr. Nelson is APTA President, Dr. Paul Rocker, Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage the President of the American Physical Therapy Association, Dr. Paul Rocker. Good morning. Welcome to the 44th Mary McMillan Lecture. Before introducing this year's lecturer, I'd like to take a few moments to remember Mary McMillan and share her legacy. Molly, as her friends knew her, was an educator, author, and a leader in the field of physical therapy. After completing a bachelor's degree at the College of Physical Culture in Liverpool, Molly worked with children under the tutelage of Sir Robert Jones. In 1918, Molly was assigned to Walter Reed General Hospital as head reconstruction aide and helped to found the U.S. Army's first organized physical therapy department. Later that year, she was granted a leave of absence from the Army to participate in the Reed College Emergency Training Program for reconstruction aides. Graduates of this and other emergency programs helped to handle the peak load of patients in 1919, immediately following World War I. During this time, Molly prepared the manuscript for her book, Massage and Therapeutic Exercises, the first book by a physical therapist published in the United States. On January 15, 1921, an association of physical therapists was established during an organizational meeting at Keene's Chop House in New York City. Mary McMillan was elected the first president of the American Women's Physical Therapeutic Association. The Mary McMillan Lecture Award was established to acknowledge and honor a member of the association who has made distinguished contributions to the profession and to provide the recipient with an opportunity to share his or her achievements and ideas through a lecture presented at our annual conference. At this time, I have the honor of recognizing previous Mary McMillan lecturers. Will those who are present with us today please stand and be recognized? Over the years, the Mary McMillan Lectures have served to highlight the latest issues affecting physical therapists and to assess the state of the profession as a whole. In that tradition, I am honored to introduce Dr. Roger M. Nelson as the 44th Mary McMillan Lecturer. Dr. Nelson has served the profession as a clinician, an educator, a researcher, and a mentor for close to 50 years. One could say his professional focus has been on assessing challenges, be they clinical, administrative, or academic, and finding ways to overcome them and passing what he has learned from his experiences on to others. Dr. Nelson received his Bachelor of Science degree in Physical Therapy from New York University, his Master's degree from Boston University, and his PhD from the University of Iowa. His record of service includes 25 years as a commissioned officer 
and United States Public Health Service, and he has created both national and international collaborations for education, research, and patient care, and has been instrumental in gaining the recognition of physical therapists as core members of the healthcare team. Currently the Vice President of Expert Clinical Benchmarks at MedRisk Incorporated, he is Professor Emeritus at Lebanon Valley College and a former professor at Thomas University, Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Nelson has authored and co-authored more than 50 publications in the peer-reviewed literature and has made more than 180 presentations to local, national, and international scientific meetings. He has published two textbooks. He has served on the APTA Board of Directors and in the APTA House of Delegates, and he chaired the task force that developed the APTA's Guide to Physical Therapist Practice. Today, Dr. Nelson will share his vision for our future, the physical therapy profession's next evolution. We are indeed at a crossroads, and the American healthcare system is being redefined. The question Dr. Nelson is posing today is this. Will we just adapt to the changes being imposed upon us, or will we emerge as a fundamental force in the delivery of a new healthcare model? Let's explore the answers. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Roger Nelson. Mr. President, Macmillan lecturers of prior years, board of directors, fellow physical therapists, family and friends. I want to thank you for this opportunity to, to share with you today my vision for the next evolution in the physical therapy profession. I'd like to start off with a question for you. What is the first thing that comes into your mind when I say the word evolution? I imagine your response is most likely Darwin, uh, survival of the fittest, or maybe even Esmeralda. Esmeralda, you ask? Esmeralda is the giant turtle that lives on Bird Island in the Indian Ocean and is estimated by experts to be more than 170 years old. Clearly, Esmeralda's long life is evidence of her adaptation to her environment. Webster defines evolution as the gradual development of something into a more complex or better form over time. It is true that the evolution can lead to the extinction of some forms of nature or, or, ever, and, or, ever, or products and services as illustrated by the fate of the dinosaurs, the eight-track tape player, and elevator operators. Today, however, I want to present a more positive tone in the discussion of the evolution of the physical therapy profession in this new healthcare environment and the role of physical therapists, the physical therapy education program, and the professional association in assisting the profession in its adaptation. The phrase, survival of the fittest, was actually coined by Herbert Spencer after reading Darwin's text on the origin of species. The term fittest was further explained by Darwin to mean better adapted for the immediate environment. We are seeing and will continue to see changes in our immediate healthcare environment and those changes will require that we adapt as a profession and as professionals. Our adaptations will help us to ensure not only that we survive as a profession, 
but also that we maintain our focus on the very reason we are all here today to deliver quality care to the patient. The evolution of our profession in recent decades can be described as significant, and the pace of change is expected to increase in the next decade. Today, I want to describe my vision for the profession as we face a healthcare environment with both challenges and opportunities. But as Henry Ford said, vision without execution is just hallucination. I know it will take many talented individuals to develop and implement a plan to address this vision, but we must start the process now and not wait for someone or some agency to hand us its plan for our future. Although planning for change and the implementation of new and revised processes are difficult tasks, they are nevertheless essential. Today I would like to address three questions. What changes are occurring or expected to occur over the next decade in a new healthcare environment? How can physical therapists and the physical therapy profession adapt to this new healthcare environment? What changes must be made in our educational and our professional association for the next evolution in the physical therapy profession? Now for the first question. What changes are occurring or expected to occur over the next decade in the healthcare environment? Researchers, consultants, think tanks, and policy-making groups expect healthcare environment to change in significant ways in the next decade. For example, healthcare reform will emphasize the overall health and well-being of the patient population with a focus on preventive care to maintain ongoing good health. Care will be customized to each patient's individual needs. Key metrics in, in assessing the quality of healthcare delivery will focus more intently on clinical outcomes, functionality, patient satisfaction, and value. Payment systems will require a focus on the value delivered from treatment. Payment systems will no longer reimburse for services for which no proof of efficacy is reported. Value-based payments will demand transparency in outcome reports. As health records are increasingly uploaded to electronic databases, treatment information will be available to all caregivers and providers in the system. Healthcare decisions will be based on scientific evidence. Each individual treatment will be monitored for its effectiveness based on factors such as patient characteristics, the timing of treatment, and the data on past treatment approaches. The efficacy of specific treatments will be constantly updated with feedback to monitor the effectiveness and value of treatment. Innovation and improvement in quality of services will be rewarded and will serve as the basis for the distribution of resources. Patients will have easy access to clinical knowledge and resources for their care and will have the ultimate control in the system, not the clinician and not the institution. Consumers will demand value, simplicity in navigation to get information, and trust 
in their healthcare providers. Now to the second question. How can physical therapists and the physical therapy profession adapt to this new healthcare environment? To prepare for this lecture, I reviewed, with the help of a graduate student, the manuscripts of earlier Macmillan lecturers. I found it quite interesting to see how previous speakers over the years had identified the shifts and changes in the profession or the profession's evolution. Speakers addressed the history and identity of our profession, as well as issues of education and the expansion of knowledge, the integration of education, practice, and research, and the patient focus of our profession. I spoke with many other individuals, including members of my mentor group who meet monthly and champion the profession over and above the political and administrative process. In addition, I've had conversations with clinical physical therapists, therapists who work mainly in administrative roles in various areas of the United States, physical therapists, and other professionals who work in the health policy area and faculty members of doctor of physical therapy programs. I visited several times with APTA administrative staff, read articles from thought leaders in healthcare world, listened to many technology, entertainment, and design, or TED sessions, and many Harvard Business Review podcasts. Today, the question being asked across all healthcare segments and among all providers is how can practitioners best anticipate and adapt to the new healthcare environment while preserving optimal patient care? My objective in all these conversations and reading has been to gather insights into how our profession will change in the next 10 years and how we could best prepare for the changes that are to come, rather than just reacting to the changes after they occur. Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that by drawing on the unique characteristics that physical therapists have developed over generations through the patient-therapist relationship, we can not only adapt efficiently to the coming changes, but also serve to lead the transition of the rest of the healthcare industry by example. I will describe the steps that we can take to reach this goal in a moment. But first, I invite you to, but first I invite you to take a moment to imagine you are a volunteer in the university experiment. Your fellow students have blindfolded you and are driving you in a car, destination unknown. They drive for two full hours. At the end of that period, they remove your blindfold and tell you to drive to Cincinnati, Ohio. Now, what would your first question in this situation be? Of course, it would be, where am I? Now, I'm not saying that we have been blindfolded as a profession over the years, certainly not. But as we face the future like that newly assigned driver, we need to first assess where we have been, where we are right now, to be able to effectively get to where we want to go. So let's take a look back. Each of us has had a different history that has led us to this profession. As a Macmillan lecturer, I've been asked to include a few historical markers that in some way help prepare me for my professional life. I'll offer two brief stories. As a high school sophomore in 1957, the olden days according to my grandsons, I began working in, the, as an, in an aide position in St. Vincent's Hospital in Staten Island with my brother Art, who was 10 years older. I worked three, four hours for two evenings and again on Saturday mornings. Art would finish his teaching at NYU physical therapy program 
run to the subway through Greenwich Village, take the ferry boat to Staten Island, and then drive from the ferry car park to St. Vincent's Hospital. Our four treatment areas were in the hallway leading to the convent, and the patients received arts skilled intervention three times a week. I started with a salary of $1 an hour, and I received a 25 cent raise per hour after two years. There were no clinical prediction rules, no guidelines, no Cochrane Institute, and no corporately owned practices. Working on a shoestring against many odds, one thing was clear to us. The patient was our sole focus. A few, year, few years, a few years later, actually, after I graduated from the NYU physical therapy program, while working in the United States Public Health Service Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, I was assigned the care of a seaman who worked in a ship's galley, serving food and performing general cleanup activities. This particular patient case Help me understand what it is meant to focus on the whole patient. The seaman had been diagnosed with sarcoma of the thumb and his dominant hand, and, and surgery was performed to amputate the thumb. When I first met with him after the surgery, I knew I needed to prepare him to return to the ship's galley. I also knew that 85% of hand function depended on a prehensive thumb and believed he would need a thumb to return to work. Finding that a prosthetic thumbs were not available, I enlisted the assistance of the hospital's dental department. The dentist cast both my thumb in the prehensive position and the hand of my patient without a thumb. Long story short, following a course of physical therapy intervention to restore the function of his dominant hand, the seaman returned to work with his prosthetic thumb attached to his hand with Velcro bands. About, about nine months later, the seaman stopped for a visit with no thumb. I, of course, asked him about the thumb, and he replied, he had thrown it overboard. <laughs> he explained that he had, he had received many complaints from his fellow seamen when they found his prosthetic thumb in the dishes he served them. <laughs> Needless to say, he had learned how to function in his job without an opposing thumb on his dominant hand. Now, as a young practitioner, I saw a man who had lost his thumb and set about making a new thumb. Instead of considering alternatives to assist him in regaining function without a replacement thumb. Although the patient had been indeed my focus from the beginning, this experience helped me to see the importance of looking beyond the pathology and obvious impairment to interact with all aspects of the patient and understand the patient's environment and his individual expectations for the services received. So my vision for the physical therapy profession in the next decade begins with a thorough and encompassing patient focus and ongoing importance of the patient-therapist interaction. Physical therapists have long created a unique oasis, so to speak, in the healthcare industry, teaming with the patient to assist in the healing process. The ability to combine the best of science with the art of a healer is ultimately what we are about as a profession. Physical therapists will make their biggest contribution in this new healthcare environment that appears focused on data and costs 
as caring individuals working by the patient's side in one-to-one -one teamwork. Now let's take a look at the steps that we must take to make this happen. Based on my assessment of our current situation, I propose that the profession has four important tasks to accomplish. The first is to delineate the value of physical therapy intervention to the patient, third-party payers, other healthcare providers, and healthcare policymakers. The evolution in healthcare, in, in the healthcare environment, certainly reflects this emphasis on value. Value is a key metric for assessing the quality of healthcare delivery. Value delivered is the focus in payment systems and the distribution of resources. Consumers are expected to increasingly demand value from their healthcare providers. But how do we assess value? The value of an item in general is worth the price or the merit that is attached to that item, and we all know that value is in the eyes of the beholder. And the definition of value varies throughout the healthcare system. Patients assess value on the healthcare delivery by matching their outcomes to their expectations. What outcomes do patients expect in terms of function, effort, and time to, achieve, to reach their goals? A mother of a young soccer player presents herself to her physical therapist with a complaint of low back pain and announces she's only able to sit for five minutes at a, at a time for her son's game. Open communication lines between the therapist and the patient allow therapists to discover that the patient's goal is to be able to sit for an entire 60-minute game. The patient assesses value of physical therapy by her ability to reach that goal. Third-party payers, other healthcare providers, and healthcare policymakers assess the value of physical therapy on the basis of their understanding of the relationship of services delivered by the therapist to the outcomes received by the patient from those services. But there are difficulties inherent to this definition. Currently, many third-party payers believe that all services billed with the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Code, or the 97,000 Code, are services delivered by a physical therapist. Physical therapists are, current, are currently are encouraged to make third-party payers aware that this is not the case. By documenting care provided by the physical therapist using APTA documentation guidelines, this practice is crucial to defining our professional position in the healthcare arena. Our profession must, be, must guard against being considered a commodity, a service that can be bought and sold for commercial advantage, and we must be careful not to delegate our responsibility in the skilled intervention portion of our profession to physical therapy aides, athletic trainers, exercise physiologists, massage technicians, and others. The Accountable Care Organization and Patient-Centered Medical Home are teams of healthcare professionals that will play significant roles in the healthcare delivery in the future. I challenge you to ask key questions about the status of physical therapists in these systems. Where does the skilled intervention by the therapist fit into the financial equation for comprehensive care in an ACO or PCMH arrangement? 
How can therapists demonstrate their clinical effectiveness and clinical efficiency? How will therapists be able to justify the level of reimbursement related to the rehabilitative part of the patient's healing process? How is the contribution of skilled intervention by a physical therapist documented in a multi-care, multidisciplinary care model? For example, with a patient with Alzheimer's disease. Although it might be expected in this era in which healthcare dollars are being redistributed, healthcare professionals might attempt to elevate their importance of their specific contribution to the overall well-being of the patient. It is hoped that the opposite might happen. That is, the availability of electronic records of all healthcare providers in the system might remove the silo effect in healthcare delivery and lead to more unity in the development and measurement of treatment goals across the profession. At the same time, the value of physical therapy services would become transparent to other healthcare providers and its value self-evident. The second task we need to accomplish to, to emphasize the importance is to emphasize the importance of collecting data, including data relevant to clinical, functional, and patient satisfaction outcomes, which serve as the basis for information provided to third-party payers and healthcare policymakers. As W. Edwards Deming has been quoted as saying, in God we trust, all others must bring data. Data are essential to, to today's delivery of healthcare. I offer an example in one way in which one healthcare group has been able, through a systematic approach to clinical data mining, to evaluate and treat the individual with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. Data collected by this group show that individuals with COPD who received the skilled intervention of a physical therapist showed significant improvements in the functions of their daily life up to a certain point determined by the extent of the disease and the finite ability of oxygen transfer. The data also showed that the clinical, critical clinical point at which these individuals were able to function at their maximum level occurred within a predicted time frame. After a period of time, if left untreated, the patient showed a decrease in their functional abilities to the point where their condition required hospital-based inpatient care. This healthcare group developed a technique to predict the likely future date in which this decline would begin for the patient and the extent of the clinical exacerbation. The group supplied data to the insurance provider to show how a short but effective physical therapist skilled intervention would assist in the patient's recovery to his or her, his or her formal, uh, former functional level. On the basis of the data provided, the insurance carrier reimbursed the tune-up intervention by the physical therapist. This is an example of a model of care in which the physical therapist drives the value equation and provides relevant data to third-party payers to justify additional care. The insurance company pays for the tune-up because it's less expensive than an inpatient stay, and the patient's quality of life is maintained. Our third task as a profession is to develop an understanding of the role of costs 
in the delivery of physical therapy services as a foundation for establishing cost-effective and cost-efficient practices. In the discussion of costs related to physical therapy services, we must be careful to define whether we are considering the therapist's cost in providing the service or the patient's and third party's cost in purchasing the service. Given that patients are able to make choices among healthcare providers and treatment programs, find information on the internet through other sources relevant to their condition and, and outcome measures for various healthcare providers, and may very be provided with limited healthcare bank account, it follows that the patient, as well as others, will increasingly consider the cost of healthcare service alternatives. Patients will compare outcomes across treatment programs, and the cost of care related to the episode of care will be known before the intervention strategy begins. If satisfaction with both care, the care process, and the outcomes are equal, the cost of healthcare services to the patient becomes a deciding factor. A cost-effective treatment intervention produces acceptable results economically from the patient's viewpoint. To assess the cost-effectiveness of an intervention, the researcher must evaluate the costs borne by the patient and or third party in relationship to the clinical, functional, and or patient satisfaction outcomes following intervention. On the other hand, the cost efficiency of an intervention is evaluated by exploring the relationship between the costs of resources placed into the process by the healthcare provider and the same clinical, functional, and patient satisfaction outcomes. That means that evaluations of cost effectiveness and cost efficiency require an analysis of the costs of inputs into the delivery of the physical therapy services, the components of the physical therapy intervention process, and the measures of clinical, functional, and patient satisfaction outcomes, as well as the cost of services to patients and third-party payers. If we're going to survive in this new healthcare environment, we must run our clinics as businesses. People in business can be both professional and financially successful. We need to be prepared to go from the current insurance reimbursement model to a flat rate for an episodes of care. Accountable care organizations are headed in that direction by forcing that model on us. We need to understand the cost of resources put into effective treatment programs for specific patient conditions and prepare to negotiate supported by data. Otherwise, we're in danger of accepting a payment that undervalues our services. The fourth task ahead is to develop an understanding of the concept of entrepreneurship in order to promote innovation. When we identify someone as an entrepreneur, we most likely think that person is one skilled in management techniques, willing to take some risks, able to bring people together to explore new ideas, new products, and or new services. Sometimes that innovation is based on introducing new materials or new skills. But other times, innovation comes from marketing existing competencies. An entrepreneur is a person who looks for new ways to increase income by finding a new niche in the existing practice and therapy 
and thereby expanding the outreach to new, to, to new clients, or by offering additional services to its existing clients. Henry Ford, a proven entrepreneur, said of his experience developing the Model T automobile, if I had asked, for, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. How can physical therapists apply this somewhat uncomfortable concept of selling services to our patients to compete in the, in the current healthcare environment? I think Steve Jobs had the right idea when he said, it's really hard to design products five focus groups. A lot of times people don't know what they want until you show it to them. An innovative service to consider is that of a physical therapist as a life coach. Individuals would seek advice from their physical therapist throughout their lifespan in cases of good health as well as injury and illness. The life coach therapist becomes one of the first healthcare providers consulted when an individual needs care at any age because the individual understands the value of physical therapy and the physical therapist-patient relationship. I believe we must try on several fronts, fronts to increase innovations such as this, fully realizing that some will bear fruit while others will not. As Sir Ken Robinson said in 2007 TED Talk, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. If we are overly concerned about making a mistake or moving in the wrong direction on some of our strategic innovation, we risk the possibility of remaining stagnant, stagnant with little hope for advancement. Now let's move on to the third and final question we're asking today. What changes must be made in our educational system and our professional association in preparation for the next evolution of the physical therapy profession? Let's first look at our educational system. To address this question, we need to not only look at the academic programs of physical therapy, but also at the processing of criteria by the Commission on Accreditation of Physical Therapy Education, or CAPTI. The future of our profession lies with students who will graduate from our academic programs now and in upcoming years. Our DPT programs need to ensure that these students are prepared at graduation to adapt to the new healthcare environment. To that end, physical therapist education must increase its emphasis on three areas that will, be mo that will most benefit our graduates in their future endeavors. The first area is the development of communication skills, including communication with the patient, communication with the caregiver, communication with other healthcare pro professionals, and communication with third-party payers. We need to continually reinforce that patients knowledgeable and informed manifest unique physical, mental, and social characteristics that affect treatment outcomes. The importance of communicating with the patient as well as observing unique patient and caregiver behaviors cannot be overemphasized in the management of patient care. Learning to communicate with the nurse case manager, the medical director of the insurance company, and the case adjuster 
has also proven helpful in planning of each treatment intervention and the assessment of the value of physical therapy services in reimbursement decisions. We need to keep in mind that third-party payers are not physical therapists. How do we, as a profession, educate third-party payers about our professional abilities and about our role in the healing process if their value metrics are focused on the bottom line? To play a vital role in this new environment, we must have effective systems in place to, to collect reliable and clinical data to monitor subsequent modifications to that data. The format of the data must allow for easy access by patients, healthcare providers, and third-party payers. A second area for increased emphasis in the education development is the development of practical research skills with a consideration to the costs associated with the delivery of physical therapy services. We need to continually afford our students the opportunities to conduct practical research based on clinical experiences in addition to the library and web-based research that are already part of their course requirements. Emphasis on cost-effective and cost-efficiency in the new healthcare environment demands that our graduates understand at least the basic principles of cost analysis. This will allow them to contribute research studies exploring the relationship of clinical, functional, and satisfaction outcomes to both the costs of the resources put into the physical therapy services and the costs borne by the patient and third-party payers for those services. Third and finally, I believe there should be a more emphasis on fostering entrepreneurship and innovation in patient care. Teaching students to think outside the box and adapt quickly to the changes in healthcare environment that they will encounter throughout their careers in physical therapy. DPT programs do an excellent job of preparing students for a position in physical therapy as the position now exists, but not for the position of the future. We need to encourage broader and more creative thinking and problem solving, teaching our students to think about the most effective ways to deliver patient care and how to build on their competencies. Students need to learn that the effort put into generating new ideas creates not only desired outcomes, but also more opportunities for expanding their business. We need to provide the foundation for our students to become lifelong learners, never forgetting the point that there are times that they will fail. Failure is part of the learning process. As Henry Ford said, failure is simply an opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. Of course, the current academic physical ther therapy curriculum is already extensive. What areas might we consider for less emphasis to balance those areas in which emphasis in is increased? Two immediately come to mind. First, I suggest we give thought to reducing the time spent in courses teaching impairment ratings like range of motion and manual muscle testing. The healthcare profession the healthcare professional has moved away from the evaluation of impairments 
to the measurement of reporting patients' functional status. Range of motion and manual muscle testing are not particularly reliable and are irrelevant to the more important measure of the patient's ability to function in his or her environment. Research studies by colleagues in 2007, which included the review of 300 workers' compensation cases, found that less than 10% of the case documentation reported an actual range of motion value to show improvement from the initial range of motion measurement. That is, most studies simply reported range of motion was improved. The same researchers and documentation relative to, man the, the same, relative to manual muscle testing tested found similar results. Although insurance companies may request range of motion and manual muscle testing measurements, many physical therapists have bypassed this evaluation metrics for the more important metrics of functional change. The second area in which emphasis should be reduced in our academic programs is the use of passive modalities. Successful outcomes are related to the therapist's skilled intervention to maximize the patient's functional outcome, not to the type and amount of modalities used. Recently, Paul Beattie, Kevin Basil, and I conducted a study supported by APTA in which we examined the reporting of physical medicine and rehabilitation codes across specific clinic types. We found that physician-owned physical therapy groups had a higher ratio of the use of passive modalities to therapeutic exercise than private practice physical therapy groups. There is little evidence that modalities are helpful in most conditions where their use most likely related to the clinic in which the treatments are received. The Commission on Accreditation of Physical Therapy Education, or CAPTI, must of course support all changes in the academic curriculum of DPT programs. A strong recommendation by CAPTI in the form of white papers or position papers supporting the use of functional measures, not impairment measures, in the documentation of patient progress and discouraging the wide use of passive modalities would serve as a basis not only for change in the educational criteria of physical therapy education programs, but also as the basis for discussing among therapists working in health policy and insurance companies, the medical directors of third-party payers, nurse case managers, and adjusters. Many individuals have contributed incalculable hours to the development of criteria that are used as standards in the accreditation process. It takes more than a few years for, an for a criterion that is submitted to CAPTI for review to become part of the accreditation handbook and subsequently enacted in the educational process. The handbook serves as the foundation for the academic and clinical components of the DPT programs. Given the fast pace of change in the healthcare environment, I question whether the process to develop and review criteria is structured to allow the introduction and consideration of relevant criteria in a timely fashion. For instance, is adequate time allotted in the CAPTI semi-annual meetings for a discussion of any changes anticipated in the healthcare landscape and how those changes might affect CAPTI criteria.
Given the sometimes overwhelming task of DPT programs to support more than 70 clinically-based criteria, some with multiple parts, in an accreditation review, has consideration been given to prioritizing criteria and eliminating outdated criteria when new criteria are added to prevent criterion creep? And finally, could physical therapy education programs be granted some freedom in curriculum development to explore new ideas, such as the addition of entrepreneurship and innovation courses? Now let's consider the changes our association needs to make to prepare for the next evolution of the physical therapy profession. The association is certainly forward-looking. What I would like to address, however, is how membership in the professional association could become relevant to all physical therapists and how it can support all physical therapists in the profession's evolution. Currently, 70% of physical therapists in the United States are not members of our national professional association. An important question to ask is what value do physical therapists currently attach to the benefits of APTA membership relative to the cost of membership? And taking that a step further, can we expect that the increase in relevancy of the association's product and services to physical therapists would result in increased membership? If we answer yes to the second question, the natural question that follows is, what actions must we take to increase benefits of APTA membership to today's physical therapists? Let us assume that physical therapists make the membership decision based on a cost-benefit ratio. That is, they weigh the benefits of membership against the cost of that membership. Lowering the cost of our, lowering the cost or increasing the benefits from membership are two ways that we could change the cost-benefit ratio to appear more favorable to non-APTA physical therapists. Perhaps a provision needs to be made for a tiered membership as exists in other professional organizations, with membership dues based on role, industry, and or work status of the individual, with associate non-voting memberships available. Maybe it's even more important, however, that we step back and think of ways to increase benefits provided by APTA to its members. A starting point would be the gathering of ideas from a diverse group of physical therapists, both APTA members and non-members. What supportive activities would they value from their professional organization? What areas of professional practice enhancement are possible through the different initiatives at the association level. Some ideas I've gathered, gathered in conversations with other physical therapists include the following suggestions. First, let's use technology to deliver clinical and administrative information to APTA members on the basis of each member's interest. Provide digital information summaries and updates that members can read in a few seconds with a link to more in-depth information. A daily type of message board tailored to the interest of the member could be developed to include clinical information as well as information about APTA programs and events 
and delivered through social media channels. Challenge members to submit their ideas to share with others. Include ideas from the association to members increasingly the value of their practices and extending their businesses by, ex by building on their unique competencies. Consider developing forums for community-based problem solving. Let the association serve as an active source of knowledge for the lifetime learner once he or she has graduated from the DPT program. Give members something they cannot get elsewhere. Do you remember when mobile phones were solely mobile phones? They were used to make and receive calls with a bonus of voicemail component. Fast forward to 2007 and the introduction of the iPhone. With a touch screen, the ability to receive and send email, make internet connections, download applications like maps and games. Soon iPhones were associated with cameras, music, and Siri, the voice-based personal assistant. Steve Jobs introduced a phone that no one knew they needed until the product was created. And now a survey has shown that close to one half of iPhone users would rather give up their toothbrush for a week than give up their iPhone. <laughs> In a similar fashion, the association needs to discover what it is that will make members want to belong. What is it that they can only get from APTA membership? How can APTA change our customers' members into customers we want them to be? Secondly, the association needs to encourage more clinically-oriented physical therapists to present their ideas in a TED-like talk, a presentation that's 18 minutes or less in which the speaker introduces a new idea to an audience. A time could be scheduled at each midwinter and annual meeting for TED-like presentations, thus providing an opportunity for conference attendees to hear from those who would be reluctant to plan a 50-minute formal presentation. Lastly, the association must be prepared for change. Some predict that the Patient Protection and Affordability, Affordable Care Act will lead to a consolidation of healthcare and eventual movement of virtually all healthcare professionals to a salaried driven position. It is estimated in this decade that 80% of medical doctors will hold a salaried position, most likely in a large healthcare facility. We already see this movement to some extent in the physical therapy profession in certain areas of our country where 100% of all physical therapy services are provided by a specific healthcare entity. If this prediction becomes reality, APTA will be offered both challenges and opportunities. Will APTA play a major role in the collective bargaining for therapists employed by large healthcare systems? Should APTA offer a form of corporate membership for all therapists employed by one healthcare corporation? How will the flavor of APTA services change if the large majority of therapists are employed by corporate practices? 
These are important issues to address, and planning for the anticipated change is required right now. Our leaders must position themselves in front of the pack, guiding change. We cannot delay and find ourselves surrounded by threats to our well-being and unable to survive. In conclusion, today's physical therapists, as well as the physical therapy education program and professional association, must adapt quickly to match the logarithmic increase in the rate of healthcare evolution. As I suggested earlier, this will include acting with certainty along multiple fronts. We need the thought leaders who are willing to take measured but decisive steps forward to, in fact, move forward. We need to encourage our clinicians, our educational program leaders in both DP institution, DPT institutions and CAPTI, and our association directors to accept the challenges and the opportunities that await our profession, to compete and survive in the current and future healthcare industry we must be ready to adapt to a new healthcare environment. And as I've outlined today, we as physical therapists are uniquely qualified to do so. We can begin today to help lead the healthcare industry into a future where an increasingly sophisticated technologically and financial delivery system still preserves at its very core the patient-practitioner relationship. I suppose if I was asked to state in one sentence my vision for the physical therapy profession, I would say I envision a profession that is truly valued as an integral component of the healthcare system now and well into the future. If allowed two sentences, I would add my vision includes a profession that is well supported by the educational program and a professional association that is continually and consistently challenges therapists to, to engage in critical thinking and creative problem solving. The Outso Sue is quoted, is quoted as saying, if you do not change direction, you may end up where you're heading. The question then becomes, are we headed in the right direction? Where we truly want to go? We cannot stand at the fork of this in the road, fearful of where each new path will lead us. As Abraham Lincoln warned, you cannot escape the reality of tomorrow by evading it today. We need to be ready for the next evolution in the physical therapy. We need to be prepared to meet the challenges of the future with the right focus, I believe, we can move forward together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to thank those who supported my nomination as a Mary McMillan lecturer, especially Nancy Bill, who shepherded this project, Gordon Waddell, Marilyn Moffat, Rob DeBee, Paul Beatty. Robert Kellogg, Karen Hayes, Matt Heinzelman, Deborah Schrode, John Lugo, Alice Davis, Dan Drummer, Mike Lair, 
Sandra Kaplan, and shout outs to Claire Coyne, who is watching this via teleconference. Thank you. The United States Public Health Service, MedRisk, and Expert Clinical Benchmarks. My 17-year association has taught me much about physical therapy, workers' comp, and the insurance industry. My colleagues at Lebanon Valley College who supported me throughout the year in the development of the lecture, and the American Academy of Clinical Electrodiagnosis and Tom Zoucher. My mentor group, yes, even old men have young mentors, John Barbas, my comrade, Kevin Basil, and Matt Heitzelman. I cannot forget my family with me today, my wife Martha, my children and grandchildren, grandsons, dressed to reflect my Norwegian heritage. <laughs> Last of all, I want to recognize my brother Art, who introduced me to the profession of physical therapy. Thank you. Thank you, Roger, for your most inspiring and thought-provoking lecture. On behalf of the American Physical Therapy Association, I wish to present you with the Mary McMillan Lecture Medallion and her certificate in commemoration of the lecture that you have presented to us today. We want to fall off like last time. Please join me again in congratulating Roger Nelson. Thank you, Roger. Good job. Good job. Thank you.